Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm reporting from La Croissette. The 2023 Cannes Film Festival is underway through May 28th, and myself and the Film Comment crew are on the ground to keep you updated with all the cinematic goings-on here, with dispatches, podcasts, interviews, and much more. On today's episode, I was joined by Dennis Lim, the Artistic Director of the New York Film Festival, for a special joint interview with Todd Haynes, whose new film, May-December, is one of the unanimous favorites of this year's Cannes. The film is inspired by one of the great scandals of the 90s. Julianne Moore plays Gracie, a woman who 20 years ago was convicted for having an affair with a 13-year-old and now lives a cozy married life with that same lover, played here by Charles Melton, and their three kids. Natalie Portman plays an actress who arrives at Gracie's home to do research for a movie based on the affair and starts probing into the couple's lives, slowly pulling apart both their and her own facades. Todd Haynes turns the tabloid fodder source of the script into a remarkably witty, dark, and intelligent meditation on the ways in which we construct and consume identity. Dennis and I talked to him about his references for the movie, his thoughts on the term camp, why he loves Zooms, and much more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This is a very special episode of the Film Comment Podcast because I have a co-pilot today, a, a very special co-pilot, and I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. Hi, I'm Dennis Lynn, Artistic Director of the New York Film Festival. And we've teamed up today because we're talking to uh, a director whose work we like very much and whose latest film we were very pleased with uh, uh, at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, the director of May, December, Todd Haynes. Todd, Hi. a pleasure to have you Likewise. on the Likewise, so great to be with you guys today. So... Uh, I know we don't have a lot of time and we are so eager to pick your brain about this movie. So, Dennis, why don't you lead us right in? I'm going to start by asking you to talk about your image books, actually, which we were just chatting about before you started recording. Uh, and I was curious, you, you, you make these quite elaborate um, compilations. Uh, Zip, every sound song. effect, sound effect. Oh, okay, so you're producing Sound these. effect, Ooh. sound effect. Four. Here's the sound of the image book coming out and being handed to Dennis. And uh, it's, uh, yeah. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so let's talk us through what is in this image book, if you don't mind, or briefly. Well, the image book uh, pulls together all kinds of uh, visual references uh, that were... um, a lot of Tina Barney uh, stills, um, images, a lot of ref- images from Persona, um, films uh, that feature um, uh, the go, uh, not the go between, it's not depicted in this as an image reference, uh, The Graduate, uh, younger, uh, older uh, relationships, but done, but told with incredible um minimal uh power minimal minimalist uh power like manhattan uh, uh shot by gordon willis um 
uh, Shadow of a Doubt, um, and then and then a lot of images from the actual locations mm. that describe that where which became Savannah, Georgia. It was originally, um, or this is Tybee, Tybee Island, Tybee yeah. Island, uh, twenty minutes outside of uh, downtown Savannah. Um, that is our location, and and which provided the this this milky light mm. uh, and this. Uh, this these sliding glass doors that trap precipitation in them that we used Chris Blavel, the director of photography on the movie and I leaned into heavily in mm-hmm. the LUTs for the, the film and the filtration that we put into the lens to really um, push it is that. It digital, right? It is, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. But it's the, there is this kind of softness to it's it. It's very right? soft. It's sort of queasy. Yeah. It's yeah. very, um, it's, it's got that milky light. Yeah. Were you trying yeah. to evoke something, period? Like specific with that look? It, no, it was just so specific to the place yeah. and and this location. We uh, Sam Lysenko, the production designer, and I. We found you know the, you go to a town and you work with the with the um, with the uh, film production commission. You know the film company commission, fan of film commission, and they show you a bunch of places and you have lists and da da da. And we had we actually had a, we had a location manager who showed us a lot of stuff. But we found this ourselves. We just like drove around Tybee and just turned onto that road that became the road that that uh, Natalie Portman's character drives, uh, and um, Catalina. It's called. Um, and we found house after house that was like, no, these are the kind of houses we gotta shoot in. Mm. And we gave our location person all these addresses. And this was our favorite, and it was the, w- the first person who responded, and it became Gracie's yeah. house. For listeners, we're flipping through Todd's image book as we speak. <laughs> you can't see this, but we're, yeah. Um, Sunday Bloody Sunday, um, Shadow of a Doubt, we mentioned. Um, and and I, I made, I was just talking to Dennis about the short film that um, Femme Fidel with Chabrol, um, a short film that the Pompidou commissions uh, uh, subjects of their retro- film right. retrospectives to present, and they all have this title like "Where do you what 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 are you what do you stand now?" or something isn't the title of all these films. Oh, or that's the theme or the theme. kind right. of. Right. Okay. Uh, but our my my um, Todd has a retrospective ongoing at the Pompidou. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It completes on the thirtieth of May. It started on the started on the tenth. And uh, my short film is called Image Book, and it is it uses this book um, as and a title. And it's also of, a, a Godard tribute, yeah. as you said. I'm sorry, a, a tribute to Godard as well. It, 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 stylistically, it, you'll see. Yeah, there's no okay. escaping. Godard passed away while we were in um, yeah pre-production, and uh, it is a there's sort of Godard meditation. There's Godard in this film too, right? I mean, you 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 said in the press notes that there's. In, in the direct address you felt you were maybe channeling him? Yes. This, yeah. this, this simplicity of the frame, the direct address that you see in Bergman and in Godard, yeah. and which you see depicted in throughout mm-hmm. this uh, book, um, were definitely... Mm. And so these are the... These are images from um, Mary Kay Cherno and, yeah. and yep. Billy, and um, which was an obvious uh, yeah. source uh, of... That uh, Sammy Birch, the writer of the script, uh-huh. uh, really, um, you know, was inspired by, but departed from, and really yeah. uh, made into her own um, story. 
I, I wanted to ask, I mean, there's a lot of these great film references in here, but the movie really reminded me of something maybe more lowbrow, if if I can describe it that way too. I mean, it's you're playing with the tropes of soaps and also like Lifetime movies and these kinds of uh, TV movies. I mean, there's obviously a TV movie within the film. Uh, you have these really campy uh, zoom-ins and sound effects. Was that also conscious... Uh, a conscious reference? Um, I don't find any of it. The word campy is something that just emerged while we've been in Cannes. It was never a term that any of us, uh, and camp is a rich and fascinating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, idea. And, and, and uh, it was never a strategy I was thinking about. And I don't think the film's visual style is uh, really evokes the TV movie uh, in its coverage or its framing or its pacing or its anything uh that is the that is the sort of past uh, narrative that that's being sort of excavated Mm. in uh in the present by the the appearance of this actress in this town and you see uh the tv movie on her uh playing uh, some tv movie that was made about the story years ago playing on her video in the but the music, um, and, and there's zooms all the way through the movie. It's just that one moment has sort of been um, uh, <laughs> isolated in discussions of the film. And, it, and, and I'm happy. Look, if camp is a term that stands in for... Um, it's a, a shorthand. Way, yeah. yeah. A way we stand back and read... Uh, against the grain of, of mm-hmm. uh, a story with a sense of with an element of humor and critique and maybe a, a nod to a sort of queer um, subjectivity or something great I mean I'm all mm. for it but it was not how I directed my actors or or conceived the way the film was shot yeah I think uh, th- but if there are zooms I'll just say zooms the zoom <laughs> is part of every single film I've ever made yeah yeah yeah, um, it's funny because there's a Godard documentary here um, in which he, among uh, many many clips of him over the years, there's one of him, I think, standing on a beach in Cannes, like prohibiting zooms, saying that <laughs> zooms should not be used. I think zooms are, can be super expressive. Um, and zoom, zoom, the entire 1970s yeah. um, are inconceivable without the zoom, the entire career of Stanley Kubrick or Altman or. Um, or almost any central filmmaker in the 1970s um, and the 60s is inconceivable. Harris Avedis once said to me, the, D- the DP, that the Zoom is the only purely cinematic artifact mm-hmm. that it can that we that that ha- is achievable um, in a camera, right? Um, because it's only something that a lens can, can do. do. Mm. Our eyes well, don't do it. Yeah. Our bodies don't do it. Marianne Doan said the same thing about the zoom. She says it's like it's a it's it's a movement of which the human eye is incapable. Right. So it's automatic artifice. It is cinematic yeah. Yeah. by de- by design, and it's how we also and so the psychology of the zoom, which is not simple, and it changes yeah. in the speeds of zooms mm-hmm. and the and the how overt zooms are. I mean, Barry Lyndon is an in, the entire film yeah. is a series of tableau shots that are slowly zoomed into and yeah. out of. Um, it, what zooms preserve is a distance from the subject. Yeah. 
and a flattening of the um, th three dimensionality that is a trick of cinema, that is a lie of cinema. And uh, that constant sense that we have to enter space with tracking mm. uh, is a kind of denial of the two dimensionality that cinema really is. Mm. I think zooms invite a certain attentiveness too, because they're a reminder of the presence yeah. of a I mean, filmmaker. It is also so, crucial that know, the zoom is know. into a face. I mean, it, it doesn't end up on a, a facial close-up, but it is the, the face is also very isolated in this film, and you return to facial close-ups as well, which also seems to me it's not purely cinematic because it's photographic maybe right. but there is something well yeah it's it's how you move from a portrait format to a landscape format without moving mm -hmm. without yeah. moving your body right. you know uh, but we do even do the cheesiest thing you could possibly imagine in movies which i just love is when and they do this in this in movies from the 70s um Gordon Willis does this. I mean, so the, the masters of cinematography, where a, a character is walking toward the camera, mm. and you zoom out with them as they walk toward you, rather than tracking yeah. out with yeah. them or moving physically with them. And it happens when Georgie is on stage singing, and he walks toward. He first we're zooming in on him to single him out as Georgie, yeah. the character we've heard about. Right. Then he turns to the lens and sees Elizabeth right. uh, sitting there, yeah. and he wa starts to walk toward us, and we zoom out as he runs toward the uh, camp toward us. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. So okay, shifting gears or uh, zooming out, <laughs> um, panning over. When it's one, one thing um, you know I've heard you talk about um, in these you know brief can interviews is that this came together very quickly. Was that different for you? Did it create a different um, rhythm on set? Did it create or necessitate different working methods? It, it did. It it made necessary a plan of action. A, which started with an aesthetic, aesthetic ideas about how to have a minimal amount of coverage, how to conduct many scenes in single shots, allowing um, actors to... Um, and then this idea of direct address. The, the letter that Natalie um, um, recites um, at the, toward the end of the film um, of Gracie's, when she sort of almost completed... The sort of the apotheosis of her transformation <laughs> into into Julianne Moore. Um, I read that if there was one thing in the script that made me go, I have to make this movie, it was that monologue, which is so beautifully written and so perfectly written. But I also just thought of Ingrid Thulin in Winter Light uh, performing the letter to the lens on a neutral medium shot. And I thought that has to be how this... Uh, should be uh, achieved, and and then it forced a series of sort of 
reverse engineering of how we use the direct address mm. um, as a motif throughout the film, and it became about mirrors, mm. where the lens occupies the position of mirrors throughout the film, and actors play directly into the lens when it's a mirror. Yeah. I was so I'm curious about how you worked with the actors uh, for this movie because there is so much doubling, there is so much uh, reflexivity here. The movie is about Natalie Portman's character basically mining Julianne Moore's character, you know, for a performance. So how do you how did you work on that in in the rehearsal and was there a kind of chronology where Julianne Moore needed to have a character that then Natalie Portman needed to learn how to slowly unravel on camera? Uh, yes, we needed all of those things. What we didn't have is time mm. and any rehearsal time. So it all happened within weeks, if not hours, basically. That, uh -huh. that process, of, I mean, the, the process of putting together these characters, I, I probably started first with discussions of the things that take the longest. It was all very tightly scheduled. So it's about wigs at mm. first, which starts two months before you can s be starting to shoot. And wigs are always um, a <laughs> long and extremely important discussion. Wow, okay. And so you begin talking about the wig uh -huh. because it's the thing that takes the longest to make, costs a lot of money. You have to start making decisions about the exact color and style of the hair uh, at least a month before, if you're lucky. And there's only a handful of expert wig makers in the world. Wow. And we always go to the same people. And they're always busy. And um, sometimes even getting to them is a, is a process unto itself. So it all started there. But then the... the, the, the I mean, what is the decision making behind the wig? I'm curious. Oh, everything. Everything. Like how the do you color, the, 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 the style of the hair. The, the, ultimately, you'll cut it and style it. But you need to know how wavy and thick or thin the hair is. You need to pick your highlights, your lowlights, your medium light yeah. colors. All these things are part. So of in this movie, what does the wig say about the wig say about the characters? Like how do you? It says it, it, what we wanted to do is to have Julian be blonde for one thing, have a thicker hair, and have a way that Natalie's hair and styling of her hair can slowly—it's quite subtle—shift toward the the thicker look of. Julianne's hair. Natalie was going to use her own hair, which is thicker and wavier, as the ultimate transition out of the wig, because the wig also had bangs and Julianne doesn't have bangs. So, but that became an additional hard, you know, burden on the day of preparing her real hair with the humidity of Savannah and the curliness and all this stuff that we wouldn't have been able to capacitate in our schedule. But just to say that all these things, as all movies are, they, it's the creative decisions, the character building decisions and the specificity of how, what those characters are, who they are, how they dress, how they move, how they speak all has to fold into the, the practicality of your time and your mm. money. And so we had, the, the planning of this movie had took, it always is this is the case, but this just happened so quickly because we didn't know we were even doing it until middle of last year when another project of mine went away. There was, oh my God, Julianne and Natalie might be available in the fall. Mm. Uh, we shifted the location from Camden, Maine to Savannah, Georgia and started thinking about Tybee on the map and then actually went there um, in the middle of the summer, me and Sam Lysenko and Mason Platz, who's our producer, one of our producers, and uh, 
and it just was like, oh my god, this is this is exactly it. It's what we want. So when you read the script, did it? You know, I think people like uh, people on the outside, like critics, will read films in an auteurist lens. Like, you know, we'll pick up things in this film from your other films. I wonder if when you read the script, it 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 did it suggest themes and preoccupations that you've been working with um, over the years? Because for me, this film takes this film takes me back in many ways. Some obvious and some not so obvious to your earliest films. Yeah. yeah no, I, I absolutely and and. Um you know, just seeing Julianne back in a domestic setting, like in safe, the use of long sustained shots that don't move, the real restraint, a real sense of confinement. Mm -hmm. um, all of those things felt um, reminiscent of safe. I hadn't actually hadn't seen safe um, through all of COVID and through the making of this movie. I just watched it when I was at the retrospect because I was going to have to talk about it. Yeah. And um, but I it was cool to see this you know reimagined all these years later you know with this same extraordinary person who came into my life then and is still somebody I work with um, on all these movies it also I mean for me the immediate reference was actually Superstar uh, maybe because it's about celebrity right but also because it gets uh, it's a movie about very dark and really sad things yeah, yeah. but told with this kind of mediating framework yeah. that allows for humor and distance and critique, but also allows you to feel the emotions very fully. And uh, that's a very specific kind of take on the celebrity movie or the tabloid movie. Um, that, yeah. yeah. No, I love that. I feel like I wasn't necessarily thinking about it in as specifically as that, but I, but it was really that, that the way the discomfiture that the, uh, script circulates in the in you as you read it, and how weirdly pleasurable that was. That I wanted to make uh, possible for the person watching the movie to feel, and to have this sort of parallel, this constant dual conversation or, or primary conversation as you watch it. And the music became one of the key ways. And, and, and the visual language, but the, the combination of the two yeah. became a kind of partnership in, in how to try to make that um, possible. Um, well, uh, maybe we can talk quickly about the music, which yeah. uh, you've adapted from the Joseph Losey film, The Go-Between. I don't know if adapted is the right word. Uh, you know, you've, uh, there is some element of... Um, I don't know, just like you do with style and with so many other things, there's an element of reference, but also originality. Uh, can you talk about how that became the final score of the film? And also, that film is also about forbidden romances mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and how that did that at all inflect the way you were thinking about this film? Um, it was um, a film I hadn't seen in so many years, it was it's from 1971, and the score is Michelle Legrand and um, it's Julie Christie and Alan Bates, and it and it sort of dis, it's it's fallen out of distribution. You can't even get a, a DVD copy of the of the movie in the U.S. Um, but it was on the, the the amazing Turner Classic Movies, which is sort of how I survive life half the time. Um, and I watched it, and I I was so it was it's such a fascinating movie, such a great movie. But the music. Uh, it sits right up front 
in the film. And, and, and again, one might argue, it, it doesn't ever get fully um, answered by the film itself, the, the intensity of the music and how dangerously you are expecting things to go or how badly you're expecting things to turn by the music. And that in and of itself is just such a, a kind of, you know, it sets up this way we used to always expect movies to make us, to shake us up, slap us in the face, and make us think about things and want to talk about them afterwards and see the movie again and have, yeah. a, have this sort of interactive discussion. The movies would make you question things and talk, you know. And they, like this, this cosmic logic of the movie. I mean, that's what the score makes me think of where... It's like this. I don't know. The music feels like fate or something. If that yeah. makes sense, yeah. yeah. And I also felt, uh, you know, sort of the uh, maybe the the sort of um, accessibility of certain metaphoric themes like the butterflies needed to be made a little arch, a little bit overdetermined, and um, undermined by uh, a, a sense of something dangerous and unsettling um, rather than something poetic and um, metaphoric. But what you described there, there's so much of that in the film, like this process of like, you know, something that's overdetermined and undermined, like seems to be the entire like uh, MO of the film. Then yeah. there's so many shifts and reversals and ambiguities and... Uh, I think there's a lot more to talk about, but we're probably... Okay, I'm going to close out. So thank you so much, Todd. And thank you, Dennis. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommon.com. 